Uh, for those who don't know, my name is uh, Jeremy, one of the elders here. Um, and today we're going to be continuing uh, in our series in Rome. Um, if you've been here for a while, you know that uh, last, last September... Uh, we started this series in Romans. We've been going through, um, and now it's pretty exciting because we're coming to the end, um, and we're starting to wrap some things up now that uh, we're finally in uh, chapter 15. So we're going to continue that today. Um, but before we do that, before we get into the text, I want to ask you guys a question. And I want you, my, my hope here is that you would uh, think about this question all day, um, or at least uh, this morning. And that question is, what are you aiming at in life? Or what are you living for? See, a lot of times, I think especially as, as people who are kind of involved in the church or know a little bit about God, know about Christianity, it's easy to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm living for God. But I want, to think, I want you to think about this last week. I want you to think about yesterday. What are you doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and what does that tell you that you're aiming at in life? Because a lot of times I think that we aim at things that we don't really intend to. We get wrapped up in life and living, and we find ourselves on a trajectory. We find ourselves um, running after something that we never intended to. I've been thinking about this question a lot over the last, um, over the last three years, really, um, and specifically over the last several months. And, and let me tell you a little bit of why I've been thinking about this question of what I'm aiming at. For the better part of the past... 12 years, I've been aiming at something. Aiming at something that I thought was a calling on my life. And everything I did, every move um, that I directed my family to make, every major decision was aimed at this one thing, this calling I thought I had. Well, what ended up happening is that calling became an idol. And even after it became an idol, I kept pursuing it, telling myself that I'm doing this for God, when in fact it was all about me. It was all about me doing what I wanted to do. Until about two years ago, um, God not so gently smashed that idol and totally took it away from my life um, and made it an impossibility. And I thank him for that. That was his grace in my life at that moment two years ago. So that's one of the reasons why I've been thinking about this question uh, of what I'm aiming at, um, because that kind of that took my life, and everything I'd been aiming at is now kind of swept away, and so it's been left me, left me questioning for the last two years, really. Another reason why I've been asking this question is, in about five months, I'm going to be 35, and that would have passed without notice in my life, because I, you know, some of these things I just don't pay attention to. Except one of my good friends, when I was talking to him one day, says, well, you're about halfway through your life. What are you going to do with the back half? And I'm thinking, great, thanks. I never would have thought about that if you didn't say that right then. And so ever since he told me that, I've been thinking, oh, man, what am I going to do with the back half of my life? Also, I'm thinking, what did I really accomplish with the first half? And what do I need to get done in the next five months to make the first half pretty significant? <laughs> It's going to be a tough five months. Um, add to this, this whole past summer, I've been transitioning at work to a new position. So I've been, um, for the past eight years, I've been a, a teacher. And this year, I'm transitioning um, out of teaching to just teaching part-time and doing more 
um, chaplain stuff at school, more administrative type stuff. And so this summer um, has really been a transition. So this is some of the reasons I've been thinking about this question of what am I aiming at or what do I want to get out of life? What am I living for? And I want you uh, this morning to have that same thought in your mind as we go through the text. A little background on the text that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in, in Romans 15, uh, verse 1 through 13. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, um, or Paul's been talking about, uh, the relationship between the strong cre- uh, Christians and weaker Christians and how they should relate. Uh, both Zach and John have done a great job explaining that relationship over the last uh, uh, two weeks in chapter 14. And this week, Paul begins to wrap that up. So he kind of brings this whole conversation to a close and to a conclusion. But more than that, Paul also wraps up the, really the back half of Romans. If you remember in uh, chapter 12, Paul made a shift. He'd been talking about the gospel and justification um, and how the gospel works out with Christ and faith. And then in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, uh, therefore be transformed. Okay? And he talks about the transformation that should take place in our life because of the truth of the gospel. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning wraps up this whole section of applying the gospel to our life. And then the rest of the book is really more Paul's personal uh, notes to the church at Rome about what he's going to be doing and how he plans to come and visit to them. Um, so this wraps up uh, Paul's application of the gospel. So this is a pretty important text, and I've been excited to share some things with you this morning. But before we do that, uh, let's take a moment and pray one more time. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here in our midst as we have gathered to worship you. Father, this morning we have come to adore you, we've come to worship you, and we've come to hear from you. I pray that the words that I speak would be true, they would be your words. I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply them to all of our lives. Father, I pray your Spirit would, uh, would wreck my heart this morning, uh, would transform me this morning by your text and by your word, and I pray that uh, it would transform the people here. Lord, that you would comfort us that you would challenge us, that we would not be the same people when we walk out those doors this morning. So we thank you for your spirit, for your mighty work, and pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So if you will, remember back to uh, poetry class when you were in high school. And I know for some of you that may be a little bit difficult. Um, If you remember looking at poetry, poetry follows a certain pattern. Uh, Maybe that's a rhyme scheme um, or syllables. Um, So for instance, um, the little poem I wrote this morning, the mouse sat in the house with a cat. Not very um, deep, not very significant, but if you notice, there's a pattern here. And that pattern is kind of an A, B, A, B. That is, the mouse sat in the house with a cat. So mouse and house and sat and cat. You guys see that? It's kind of like an A-B-A-B structure. We have that here in the text this morning. And, and I know that that seems weird to start with this, but I want to explain because it's going it's to shape the way we go through the text. What Paul does 
is he talks to the Romans about some encouragement, and then he prays for them. And he gives them more encouragement instruction, and he prays for them again. And what we're going to do, instead of just working straight through the text, we're going to look at Paul's encouragement first, and we're going to come back and look at his prayers. So we're going to kind of jump back and forth in the text, and I just wanted to um, let you know that that's why I'm not working all the way through it this morning. Um, So hopefully you guys followed that whole thing there. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Let's get into the text. Paul writes, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insult of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul jumps right in. Uh, Remember the context is this relationship between the strong and the weak. He jumps right in and he commands, gives this command to the strong believers. The strong believers, if you remember, are the ones who fully understand their freedom in Christ. They understand that, uh, at least in the context of of the Roman church, it didn't matter if you ate meat offered to idols or not. So it didn't matter what you ate. That doesn't doesn't affect salvation. It doesn't affect your relationship with God. It doesn't matter what holidays you celebrate or don't celebrate. So the strong Christians got that. They they understood their freedom. The weaker ones seemed to be the ones that kind of had scruples about this. They they weren't sure. Maybe that could be because of their background maybe because that could be the way they were raised. They just, they weren't okay eating meat that had been offered to idols. They thought that somehow this was wrong, that this was participating in the worship of idols, and so they had scruples about it, or they had problems with it, or they had problems, they had to celebrate certain days because somehow that was significant. So that's just a kind of a recap of what we talked about the last two weeks of the strong and the weak. Paul commands the strong believers, those who understand their freedom in Christ, and he says to bear with the weak. Bear with those who are weaker than you. And, and when Paul says bear with them, he doesn't just mean put up with them. Like, we all have coworkers that we kind of just bear with. You know, the guy that really annoys us and he stops us all the time in the hallways and he just talks and talks and talks. And like, you don't say anything hoping that maybe he's going to get the clue that you don't really want to talk or you don't have time to talk and maybe he'll stop and let you go because you don't want to be rude and just walk away. So you're trying to bear with this guy and you're just, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, Mm, wow, that's awesome, great, yeah, okay. And he just goes on and on. That's not what Paul's saying here when he says bear with the weak. The idea here is the same thing he talks about in Galatians when he says, bear one another's burdens. What he tells the strong people to do is to pick up the weak, to help them, to use your strength, to use your freedom as a means of caring for those who are weaker than you. So it's not, it's a bearing is literally a picking up. That is, Their freedom is not to be used, their strength is not to be used for themselves or for what they want. It's to be used for other people. It's to be used for those who are weaker. That is the logic of what Paul is saying here, is that those who are strong 
those who understand their freedom are to consider and put first those who are weaker. Those who don't get their freedom. And are to, to in a sense, um, curb the use of their freedom for the benefit of those who are weaker. To set aside your preferences and your desires and what you can legitimately do to take care of those who are weaker. This is the same thing that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul goes on this long um, talk again about the weak and the strong. And this is how he concludes it, starting in verse 31 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What Paul is driving home here um, to the church at Corinth and also to the church at Rome is that we are to live our lives for other people, even if that means setting aside our own desires, setting aside our own preferences, and setting aside what we can legitimately do as Christians, setting all that aside so that we can serve other people. And what Paul does here is he uses his own life. He says, look guys, I've done this. And Paul's not trying to boast here. He's trying to encourage the church. He says, look, this is what I've been doing. As I go from church to church, from town to town, and talk to people, I serve them for the glory of God. A real stark example of this comes in Paul's life um, towards the end of Acts. Now, many of you may recall, Paul did a lot of traveling, planting churches, and after one of his journeys... Uh, he comes back to Jerusalem. And one of the things Paul was always criticized is he was always hanging out with Gentiles or non-Jews. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people at the time had problems with that. They thought that Paul was somehow um, not following God because he was associating uh, with Gentiles so much. And Paul talks about, look, it's, it's not what you do. It's not keeping the law that makes you close to God. It's not some religious devotion or uh, rituals that draw you into God. But when Paul gets to Jerusalem, what's interesting is when he's there, he participates in Jewish purification rites and rituals. It's just so odd for Paul. Because he's sitting there saying, look, these things don't matter. These things don't do anything in your relationship with Christ. And yet, to serve his Jewish brothers, who thought that this was important, he went ahead and he did it. He knew he didn't have to. He had the freedom to say, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't mean anything in my relationship with God. And yet, in order to love his fellow believers, he set aside his own freedom, he set aside his own preference, and he served them. And that's what he's talking about um, here when he says that we are to be, the strong are to bear with uh, the weak and not to please ourselves. What's interesting here is I don't think Paul's just talking to the strong brothers. 
Because he says um, in verse 2, he says, each of us. And he talks about pleasing our neighbor. And the use of this language of neighbor harkens back to this notion of love your neighbor as yourself. What Paul's doing here is he's broadening this command. He's not just talking to the strong. He's talking to all the church. You see, the point of the gospel lived out in our lives is this. That our preferences no longer matter in the service and love for other people. That's what the gospel transforms us to. To love other people to the point where my preferences and what I desire doesn't matter and doesn't take priority anymore. This is what Paul has been trying to tell the church all along. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says this. He says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 13, starting in verse 8, he tells the church, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And what other, whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's application of the gospel that he has been working out for the last three chapters in this back half of Romans is summed up in this. Love your neighbor, set aside your own desires, your own freedom to serve those in the community and to serve those outside the community. Yes, you are free. When you understand the gospel, you understand that none of this stuff, a lot of this uh, secondary issues don't matter. They're secondary. But in order to love others, I submit to others. Martin Luther, um, German monk, uh, leader of the Reformation in the 1500s, wrote a book all about Christian freedom, um, trying to explain how um, Christians are free from, um, from a legalism that says you have to go to... Um, you have to do these rituals. You have to say these prayers. You have to give this much money. And then God is pleased with you and you're right with God. As long as you go through these motions or these rituals, you're all right. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, in a sense, rebelled against that, said the gospel is so much more than that. And this is what he writes on this book on Christian freedom. He says, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. So he picks up on this notion that Paul talks about throughout the New Testament, that you are free as Christians. You're not bound by anything or anyone. And then he follows that up. He says, a Christian man is a most dutiful servant to all, subject to all. And here's the paradox of our freedom and our life in community as believers. Is yes, we're totally free, and the purpose of that freedom is so that we can serve other people. The purpose of why we've been given the freedom is so that we can love other people and serve them for their good. Now, some of you may hear this and think, well, if I'm free and I'm able to do all of these things, I'm able to do what I want, it doesn't matter what, what food I eat, it doesn't matter what, 
holidays I celebrate or don't celebrate. Um, it may not matter um, if I read Harry Potter or I don't read Harry Potter. Um, these things don't matter. Well, then, if I'm serving the weak and if I'm curbing all of these things for the weaker brothers, then aren't I in some ways just shackled by them? Aren't I in some ways um, shackled by their own scruples and therefore they're kind of running my life and, and I'm just pleasing man? And, and Paul says we shouldn't please men. That's not the goal of our life. Well, two things on this. The first, the reason that we're to serve one another is for one another's mutual good for the building up or for edification of each other. So it's not just that we, we kind of submit, okay, whatever you want, I'll do. But we do those things for others that are actually going to serve their good, not just what they want. Because let's just all face it, we, we all recognize there are times we want things and those things aren't good for us. I may want to eat a half gallon of strawberry ice cream right before I go to bed um, but that's probably not going to be the best thing for me, right? It may taste good, but it's not, it's not going to be healthy, right? Especially if I'm going to bed at, you know, 11.30 or midnight. I shouldn't be eating that much junk at, that late at night. Um, Zach taught me that one day. Um, so it's not just that we give people what they want. We give them what is going to be good for building up their faith for drawing them closer to God, for helping them to understand the gospel and work that out in their lives. And if that means that we, we shackle or we, we curb some of our own freedom so that we can accomplish that, that's what we're supposed to do. The second thing I'd like to say for those who, who may say, well, this means that my freedoms are going to be shackled, and I'm going to try and say this with all compassion I can muster, get over it. If the gospel has transformed your life and gotten a hold of your life, get over it. Because what the gospel means and what the gospel is, is that you and I, in all of our junk and scruples and messed up living and messed up thinking and, and farness from God, God looked upon us and loved us and served us. He came to us when we couldn't come to him and he redeemed us. And he accepted us with all of our junk and all of our baggage and all of our stupid ways of thinking. And he accepted us and called us his own and brought us into his family as adopted sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges of his own son Christ. And if God has done that for us in Christ, that's what it means to live out the gospel with other people. That we emulate that towards other people. That Christ, there's this great, um, there's this great scene towards the end of the gospels where um, Christ has been taken He's getting ready to be crucified. And there's this notion that's played out there that, that Christ could have called. He had the power. He had the authority. He had the right to call legions of angels to protect him. 
That was fully within his right. It was fully within his power. And yet he didn't. Rather, he chose to suffer. He chose to die because he loved you. And he wanted to serve you and me. Paul lifts Christ up here as the example of what we're supposed to be doing. That just as Christ took upon himself the insults, just as Christ died for us to serve us, so too, if the gospel has grabbed your life, and if you understand the gospel, so too are you supposed to live like Christ. And I'm supposed to live like Christ. And if that means shackling my freedoms my strength, so I can serve other people? Well, that's not a burden. That's not, that's not tough. That's doing what Christ has done. That's, that's the gospel being lived out in our lives. This notion Paul picks up on again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. He gives another example, very similar to what he has here. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. All right? So don't look at your own things only, but look at what the interests of others are, the needs of others, the concerns of others, uh, the weaknesses of others. And he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. You see, what Paul is admonishing us to do in the church, all of us, strong, weak, it doesn't matter, what he's telling all of us to do is to just follow the example of Christ. Christ in all his glory, in all his power, became a servant. And we, in our freedom in the gospel, in our freedom in Christ Jesus, are to serve one another. Because this is what Christ has done. Skipping the next section, uh, the prayer, we'll come back to that. Romans 15, 7. Paul reiterates what he's just said in kind of a more forceful way. He says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may, be glorif may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Paul ends this whole section the same way he began it. He begins in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, accept one another. And he ends here by saying, accept one another. That is, there's nothing 
that should bar us from fellowship with one another. If we are in Christ, then we should be united. There should be nothing that, that causes us to hold a person at arm's distance or causes us to um, not be able to love the other person. The acceptance here is the same acceptance that, that Christ has offered to us. It says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. So what Paul is saying here is grounded in what Christ has already done. You see, Christianity is not about just try harder. Here's a bunch of rules and go try and do them. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and give it your best shot. But what we're told to do as Christians is those who follow Christ is simply embody what Christ has already done. To um, enact, if you will, what Christ has already done. So as a reminder of how this is grounded, this acceptance is grounded in the gospel, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says Christ has done for us, and then think about that in the context of our acceptance of one another. Romans 5, 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. Because of what Christ has done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, we have peace with God. No matter who we are or what we've done or where we're at, we can have peace with God. And then Paul says, look, if that's true, if you have peace with God because of what Christ has done, when you turn to your brother or your sister, and whom you live with, and whom you, you fellowship with, and whom you, you do church together, and whom you um, walk with in life. How can you not accept them? How can you not love them and serve them? That is, these two things are contradictory. And, and John um, says the same thing. He, in John's letter, 1 John um, he talks about loving God and loving others. And at one point he says, it's impossible for you to love God who you don't see if you can't love your brother, your neighbor, who you do see. That in fact, if, if you want to know if the gospel is taking traction in your life, if you want to know if the gospel is transforming you, if you're being transformed in your mind and in your thinking, ask yourself how you're doing at loving other people. And not just loving them, oh yeah, man, I love them. They're awesome. They're great. They're amazing. I mean, do you curb your desires and what you want to serve them? Because that's what it means to love. Not just saying something so, to someone, oh yeah, man, I love you. It means actually curbing what you want to do for them. That's when you're loving them. That's when you're, when you're fulfilling this notion of accepting others as Christ has accepted you. Paul applies this. He uses the example of what Jesus has done for the Jews and Gentiles. It is that Jesus came as the Messiah of the, of the Jews, fulfilling all these Old Testament promises, but he did that with an eye of being the Messiah for the Gentiles as well, bringing in the Gentiles together with the Jews. 
in the ancient world, there was no larger social barrier than that between the Jews and the Gentiles. They couldn't worship together. They didn't eat at the same table. And in the ancient world, being able to eat at the same table meant that you were brothers, that you, were, you had fellowship, that you were united. Jews and Gentiles couldn't eat at the same table. Christ destroyed that barrier. He brought together these two separate social classes. If he has brought together these in his death and in his resurrection, how can he not bring together us? If that was, was the highest thing that would divide people in the ancient world, and that was destroyed in Christ, what is there that can divide us and our love for one another? What is so important that we can't set it aside for the gospel and for the mission of God and for that gospel to be proclaimed? That's what Paul's trying to get these people to understand, trying to get the church to understand. Let's take a look at Paul's prayers. And what is it that he prays for? And as I was reading through this text, I found it kind of funny that Paul would write out his prayers. When I pray for someone, I typically don't write out, okay, here's my prayer. I'm going to send it to you now so you can read it. It just, there's a part of that just seems odd to me. Okay? But what Paul's intention here is he's praying for them, but he's using this prayer as a means of encouraging them. So this is, in a sense, another encouragement, another um, prompter to them. Romans 15, 5 through 6, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mind you may glorify God, and fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He prays that they would have unity with one another. That they would be united as one body. For in fact, you are one body. We are one because we're in Christ. That is, if we are all in Christ, then we are all together in Christ and we're unified. And that should play out in the way that we live our lives. That should play out in the way that we interact and and the way we treat one another. But notice for Paul, unity isn't the end game. That is, he doesn't want us to be unified just for the sake of unity. The unity that God would give you a spirit of unity so that for the purpose of, for the reason that with one heart and mouth you may glorify God. The end is that we would glorify God with our lives. In fact, as as the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man, the highest purpose of mankind, of your life, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we don't have unity, Paul seems to be saying here, if we're not unified, we can't glorify God. Or we can't glorify God the way we're intended to, that we're supposed to. The purpose of the unity is that God would be glorified because God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as we are one, we image that. And we bring glory to him because we proclaim that his work of salvation It's not just about me and Jesus, it's about us and him gathering together his people as one body under him. 
So Paul prays that we would be unified so that we can glorify God. Romans 15, 13, the last prayer that he has here. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Paul's prayer here is that you would have joy, that you would have peace, and that you would have hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit would apply these things to your life. All of this, curbing our own strength, our own freedom, our own desires to serve other people, unity, all of this ends in hope. Hope is the the culmination of his prayer here in chapter 13. Hope allows us to look to the future and take, um, take joy, to be at ease, to know that no matter what has happened to you, no matter how bad you have been hurt, no matter how bad, um, how big the baggage is that you carry, the secrets or the junk that you don't share, the gospel proclaims that you can have hope because of what Christ has done. No matter how bad your life may be now, now doesn't have the final word on your life. No matter how bad you're longing for something that you just can't get, whether it's a job, um, a spouse, whatever, the gospel says that all of these longings are going to be fulfilled in Christ. Maybe not the way you want them to be, but they're fulfilled in Christ. And we can have hope that we're not going to be abandoned in life. We're not going to be left alone in life. And our past doesn't have our fi- the final say, and that the storms and the clouds of today will be swept aside with a new day that is dawning in Christ Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. And Paul prays that this hope would spring up in us as we learn to love, as we learn to serve, as we learn to be unified with one another. Because as we do these things, we start to embody the gospel and we understand that the gospel changes everything. The death and the resurrection is what transforms our lives and our desires. If God can provide salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles, if he can bring a rebellious people into unity with God the Father, then the this of your life, whatever is the cloud or storm of your life today, God is bigger than that. And that doesn't have the final say. There's hope for tomorrow. And that hope is found in the gospel. That hope's not going to be found in anything except the gospel, except Christ. It's not going to be found in um, finding the right spouse, having the, the best kids, having the right kind of job. If people would just pay attention to me and listen to me, then my life would be better. That's not going to change your life. That's not going to impact your life in the way that you long for deep down. The better job, the promotion, it's just one more thing. The only thing that can bring us hope is the promise of a new day that has dawned in Christ Jesus. So in light of all of this, what are you really aiming at in life? 
What are you really striving for? And what do you long for in life? Are you aiming at glorifying God with your life? If you are, are you curbing your own desires and freedom to serve one another? Are you really aiming at setting aside your preferences for the good of one another? Are you striving for unity within the body and to love one another? Because as Paul says here, if we're aiming at glorifying God, if we're aiming at living a life for God, we're also going to be aiming at these other things. And if we're not aiming at them, then maybe we're not really aiming at glorifying God. Maybe we're aiming, like I was for years, at baptizing my own desires. Putting God's stamp of approval upon what I wanted to do. And what I thought would bring me significance. Every week here at Genesis, we partake of communion. And the reason we do that is because communion is a picture of what God has done for us. That his son was broken, his body was broken, his blood was poured out on our behalf. One of the things I challenge you to think about today as we participate in communion, as we take communion, is what are you aiming at? Are you embodying the brokenness and the poured outness of Christ in your own life with other people? Because as Christ was broken, we too are to be broken for other people.